Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production, and our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we're going to talk about hindsight, <laughs> what we wish people, what we wish we had known um, when we started our businesses or when we started doing production uh, or or as we went along. So um, so hopefully this will, we're, uh, Mondays are uh, oftentimes are more business hours and it's really, while you can do all this technical stuff, the business stuff matters. So uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that in the second hour. Um, you can also ask questions throughout the hour. So um, through, through the first hour, you can either use Makana, which a lot of people use here, or you can just use this little uh, QR code here. It's askofficehours.com. Um, and uh, type in your questions there, and uh, we will bring them in as we can uh, into the main system. Make sure to vote on those questions so that we know uh, which ones you'd like us to ask first. Let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Mike Edwards this morning from Brooklyn, New York. He says, morning, everyone. Deciding between the Blackmagic 4ME Constellation HD or the 4ME Constellation 4K simulcasting through Restream. Is the 4K stream worth it or is it really about captioning in, uh, capture, capturing excuse me, in 4K but outputting in HD that would justify the purchase? Jesse? Um, if money's no object, I would go with the higher-end model. That said, I don't believe that these output to web at 4K. They output a 1080 uh, webcam signal, and they can capture and record at 4K. Yeah, I'm not sure, um, but I would say that I, 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 to future-proof what you're doing, I, I would really strongly think about 4K. 4K becomes useful in a lot of different places, uh, sometimes with iMag, sometimes with other things that you're doing. Um, there's things that you may want to do with that if you can afford it, as Jesse said, if you can't, you're probably going to be fine that 90, 95% of what you do uh, would want to use HD anyway. Um, but uh, but having the opportunity to do it, there's a lot of shows that I do that I record in 4K. Uh, I record the whole show in 4K, even though it's going out at 1080p. And I'm really glad I did. Um, oftentimes, the, you know, the, these are the things that you that you have later. Uh, you're kind of future proofing not only the stream that you're doing right then, but the content into the future. So uh, I've been operating mostly in 4K since 2016, <laughs> and so and there's a lot of times when we've been able to deliver a higher quality um, signal, to, uh, high, higher quality records to the client, which has been greatly appreciated. Next question. T.J. Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, says, I'm getting fiber internet this week. Congratulations, T.J. And I am keeping my existing DSL service as a backup. Can the panel offer suggestions on how best to coordinate these connections as primary or secondary or point me to a good resource that shows how to do this? Nigel? So I actually can't, but I did want to make another point, and I was hoping I wouldn't be first. The point I wanted to make was, if you're going to do this, which is a good idea, look at every piece of networking equipment you have in your home. Because one of the things we've noticed quite a lot is people are, are seduced by the offers they're getting of one gig, two and a half gig uh, fiber service attaching to their network and finding no real benefit in their homes. So um, will, will you try, someone else smarter than me is going to explain to you how you can uh, have two backup systems work. My advice to you is look at every piece of networking equipment, use LandScan to make sure you know everything on your network and make sure you're putting in routers and switches and Wi-Fi hubs that can actually benefit from all that new speed. Good, Bill. I lived for about three years with uh, cable uh, high speed uh, I had a gigabit up and down 
It was lovely. It was lovely for me because I do a lot of video work, and so I was uploading a ton. So having symmetrical one gig up made a big difference in my practice back uh, when I had it. Unfortunately, when I moved last time, that was not available here, so I had to downgrade. I will say it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be really painful having to ratchet down from that one... uh, one gig upload service to now I'm somewhere around 300 megabit. And it it's not horrible. Yes, I miss throwing a big video file on there and literally seven minutes later having the whole thing up in the cloud. Now it's back to 15 or 30 minutes. Uh, but, you know, I can go away and do something else. Uh, but while I had it, I loved it, TJ. I'm uh, Thumbs up for you. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did when I had it. Good. John? Dream Machine Pro for $380 or whatever it is supports dual WAN. There you go. Yeah, and I, as someone who regularly has to drive into the office to do uploads because I don't have enough speed, congratulations. <laughs> so, so, so I think that uh, I, I, uh, our office has, has uh, two one-gig pipes and I have about 30 or 40 up, and there are definitely places where I have to make a decision that I would like it to go up in, in 30 minutes rather than seven hours or eight hours or 16 hours. So, um, so I, I, I think that it's always... I'm, I'm, we're waiting. Frontier is supposed to come through here and give me... We have two or five gigs <laughs> symmetrical coming in, and I'm trying to figure out whether t- five is enough. Um, anyway, uh, Peplink is um, uh, uh, Peplink is another one to look at. So the Dream Machine is is one to look at. Peplink makes a lot that let you you can have five G modems as well as multiple WANs. Uh, you know, a lot of different things going on there. Um, and then we in the office we use the. Uh, uh, um, I don't, know why. <laughs> I don't know why my brain just turned off. Anyway, so we, we use a couple of things in the office that, that will let us drop those off. Go to Chris. How much is uh, the 5 gig going to be? I don't know. It's like 200 bucks, 250 bucks, something like that. I mean, I do a lot out of the house. So it's, it's $150 a month for uh, 2 gig symmetrical. So, it's, so that's going to be, um, that's it's probably. Up. That's easy. Yeah, for that's, that's an easy decision to make. Yeah, well, the two gig is an easy decision. I think the five gig is a little bit more. I think it's like two fifty or something like that. That's that has me hemming and hawing over over the extra. I mean, now we do a lot. I mean, I there's a lot of things I could do from my house, and I'm not going to get rid of the Xfinity. That'll be the same thing with TJ. I'll keep it as a backup. Um, but uh, but the um, yeah, it's going to be nice if when it, when it eventually shows up. <laughs> so we'll see. They keep on putting things on our hand, the handle of our doors. And then nothing happens. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, is it true that anyone can now buy full HD 1080p Zoom meeting and webinar for $99 a month with, uh, and he's got the AT, uh, he's got HTTP US pricing at zoom.us. Guy? Yeah, it looks like from this webpage that it's true. So if you go over to the uh, Zoom events and webinars page and you look at the $99 a month Zoom sessions and you scroll down and you're comparing these things because this is what we're doing over the weekend, trying to figure out what what the difference with some of these was because we're we're excited about some of the production tools that we saw at uh, Zoomtopia. So if you go down to production tools, 1080p resolution is is checked. So you get 1080p with Backstage, uh, with Production Studio. And once you guys see Production Studio, it's it's pretty cool. If you haven't played with it, it's worth the 99 bucks to go in there and play with a 1080p webinar with Production Studio. You can load people in there. And I'm just glad to see this come into the masses if it's 
true, uh, it's popping up in my account. So uh, I think other people should try it because it looks gorgeous and you can have your own little looks. You can do two ups, three ups, four ups, five ups, six, nine ups uh, and be cutting. It's, it's pretty cool. I think that there uh, zooms. It appears that Zoom keeps on packing all these features in because no one actually cares about events, <laughs> like, like the, the 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 tools around events. You know, like I, I've done a couple events, and man, that I I just hate that interface. You've used like, production tools. I mean, I have not. no, no. I'm saying they they packed production tools in with all these other things into Zoom events because the actual product Zoom events is a little bit of a. I'd say to give it another roll. I mean, they did Zoomtopia, which was a huge event on it. And man, I, seeing behind the scenes, the for those of you who are lucky enough to have go back there and the take actual, a look. Have you used the actual interface for events, though? I'm just, I'm just asking, have you? Have you? Yeah, I'm in it right now. Yeah, it's, oh, okay. yeah, it's changed. It's evolved. So if you okay. looked at it like a year ago or six months ago, it's changed. It's, it's dramatically getting better and better. So their, their tools are powerful. I mean, for 99 bucks to be able to try it, it's... It's no, pretty I, cool to have a CDN. It's only limited to 100 people. That's where, that's where they get you. So if you want to go up to 500, you're going to be spending bucks. Like some of our licenses here are worth uh, $9,000 a year for a 1,000-seat account. So that's, that's, a, that's a big room. If you look at you know, physically having 1,000 people come to an event, being able to do it for nine grand, I guess that's, that is kind of cheap when you look at it that way. Yeah, no, I, and I'm not talking about production studio, which I think is great. Um, I think that what Adam's been working on that and that's been, I think that that's, I just wish we would see it in wider, a wider rollout, but they don't because the, you know, you got to figure out how to get the, it's the Zoom events platform itself that, that drives, that drove us crazy. <laughs> like we don't, it doesn't drive us crazy anymore because we don't use it. Uh, next question. Try it. Try it. So bad. Uh, Douglas Carmichael's up next, and Douglas says a startup has released AutoMix, a free AI tool that can mix a music track based on the level of importance assigned to each of the component tracks. Any thoughts? Good, Courtney. This looks. I looked at their website. It, it's kind of a horrible idea. Uh, any creative thing that you want to do, like a mix, uh, you don't want to turn it over to a robot. And you have to upload all of your tracks. It's a web-based uh, product. You upload all of your tracks, and then you you assign a level of importance, low, medium, or high, to each track. So imagine this. You know, if you've got a typical combo where you know each of the instruments you know takes a solo lead or takes you know takes over for one section of the song how are you going to assign that you only assign low medium or high for the by the track not for the particular piece of music so it seems like uh, a horrible idea <laughs> it, it may not be able as each soloist comes up you know they may be assigned low for the first part of the song and then medium for the next part of the song and then high when they do their solo but i don't think it allows you that granularity you also have to tell it you know uh, how, how much kind of reverb do you want on this track and that track and that this track and that track and let it mix it uh i haven't tried it but it sounds like a horrible idea you know I, uh, what i'm finding with the ai stuff is that it all comes out and it's not very good when it first starts and then and then you get really amazed at what it can do <laughs> like it's it we we did some uh we were doing some voice re replacement over the weekend that uh and uh, or 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 jeff was doing some voice replacement he sent it to me and i just couldn't believe it like it, it was like oh this doesn't work i don't think this is going to work oh go ahead and try it and it comes back and you're like whoa <laughs> okay that's that that's pretty amazing so i think that usually these things uh, what i'm finding is ai just slowly sneaks up on you on, on what it can actually get done. Uh, next question. Hamza Al-Boutafras in Marrakesh, 
Uh, Morocco says, what is the best way to sync audio when using three SRT cameras in a remote location, bringing all back to a remote studio vMix session? The mics are going into a local mixer and then single output to one of the cameras. And by the way, that's off of our QR drop. I was waiting for Guy to raise his hand. <laughs> Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, so one of the easiest ways that we do it is to just use a 4K image and load all into a quad display. So if it's just four, you can do it that way. There's other specific devices like the High Vision uh, Makito, the X4, that has four inputs, and those will all arrive in, in sync. And there is tools like uh, SRT Mini Server that can take time code and they can shift things around. So if you had four phones that were running um, something like Larix Broadcaster, it could actually shift those uh, feeds around based on time code. So there's three different ways right there. Yeah, exactly what the guy said. <laughs> Next question. Matt L. in Oakland, California, on the streaming topic with LiveView, is using their LRT service necessary and what are the benefits of using it? Uh, it's not necessary. I, I don't think that I don't think that we've actually used it yet. So I think that I'm I, I I'd be it'd be hard for me to lay out exactly what I think that the uh, advantages there would be. Good guy. Yeah, during the pandemic, I made the mistake of carrying on my LRT service, uh, kind of forgot about it, but it, it cost about 350 to $400 a year. And that is the bonding. That, that's the service that brings those modems back together in the cloud. Otherwise, you, gotta host your, you either got to have the hardware or you got to uh, um, host your own version of the software. So it's like using their, their cloud. And uh, then that's where you also point where you want your destination to go. So let's say, for instance, you, you have a live view with five modems in it. All those modems go up to the LRT service, and then you point it to, let's say, YouTube and, or back to wherever you, your MCR is, and you can just tell it where to go. So yeah, you, you have to have it. And otherwise, it doesn't work. Well, and, and the, 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 the LRT service that's up in the cloud. So we primarily, we use it with the hardware. So it is using the LRT in, in between. So there's a live view, and then we have hardware that it spits it back out again. Um, we have used it in the cloud. In fact, we use it now that I, I, I just had, I was having a little bit of a, of a, of a gap here. Um, so the, um, uh, we use it in the cloud. Uh, and what's nice about it is you can point it towards anything that you want. So you can have it pointed towards Twitter and then immediately point it towards YouTube or other things like that that are there in the cloud. I, as, as Guy said, I think it's about 350 a month or $400 a month or something like that. Um, a and year, the, sorry. It's, it's not a month, oh, it's a year. There's it's a yearly, there's a monthly cost to it as well, at least for transfer, for outputs or something like that. So I'm pretty sure. Um, so the, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, so so the, the, um, but to trans because there's a trans there's some kind of transport cost that's that's connected to that. I don't think it's an opened. I don't think it's an open thing, but it, I could be wrong. Um, the uh, but we primarily go from hardware to hardware is how we handle it there. Usually the LU eight hundred to a LU uh, to the four thousand. Uh, next question. Next one comes from uh, to us from Jay Grant in New York City. Good morning, Office Hours. There are several brands of telephoto lens available to the iPhone thirteen and fourteen. Which brand would the panel recommend? I go ahead, Bill. The only brand I've used so far are the Moment lenses. They were just fine. I, I the, the problem that I have, and this is personal to me, is that when I'm using my phone, I'm typically shooting an ENG style. That means electronic news gathering. That means you're going to go to some event, you're going to look for shots, and you're going to capture what's in front of you rather than planning it. 
If I'm in the EFP or electronic field production mode, that's when I would typically be choosing lenses for a particular thing and executing a shot with that lens. I don't really think those two things kind of for me go together. If I'm executing shots, I'm probably on my Blackmagic 6K or some other camera that has a more robust infrastructure underneath it doesn't mean you can't do it or that you shouldn't do it but because of that i haven't invested in a lot of these external lens kits although i guess there's an increasingly robust amount but they're also increasing the the capabilities of the onboard camera so that you're probably needing less and less those things case in point the new periscope camera and the iphone 15 which gets you closer without having to to resort to an external lens I, uh, I I use the moment lenses and and they're 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 good. Uh, I think that those are the best glass that right now is available for it. And the I think that the small rigs actually have a snap on so that you can use the small rig. Um, there, you'll see the little openings there, and you can actually apply the the moment lenses to those. Um, by the way, as a, as an aside, in the latest Apple commercial, you'll see uh, a small rig. <laughs> you'll see an iPhone inside of a small rig. You'll see a little Noga arm on it. They do some uh, like a behind the scenes of. Olivia Rodrigo um, singing and you have uh, these kind of they're, they're giving you a little bit of a hint that they may and I think that for a while I think Apple made it look like you could just shoot it with your you know handheld but I think that they're now starting to sell this idea that it could be used as a production camera and they are starting to like show it rigged up with a bunch of things so stay tuned probably for more ads like that next question Gordon Lake, Los Angeles, California. A fake White House news release fooled some news organizations. How could this issue be fixed? And he's got a link there to the NBC News uh, story. John? Sorry about that. I missed the button. Um, what's going to happen? Deep, deep, uh, deep mind has developed amazing uh, encrypted, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Watermark. And so I think this is going to be mandatory. This is going to be passed by legislature where all the stuff is going to have to be watermarked, and then that will determine whether we have fakes or, or real video. Nigel? It can't and never will be because the truth is that, well, John has the right technical answer. Someone's going to fake it. Someone's going to be tricked by something else. Uh, people want to deceive you. Never believe anything you read from a single source. And the, the saddest thing for all of us is that we no longer have a media who feels the need to do any fact checks. So make sure you're doing it for them. Uh, CJ? Yeah, it's interesting. It almost looks like this. I don't know if this was AI so much as just some old fashioned uh, Photoshop. If you look at the at the tweet of what or that of the fake, they just took a document that was uh, a real document from earlier this year, and they took the four hundred million and made it eight billion, and then changed where it was going, and then re-upload it. But the the trouble was not so much that the uh, not so much that this was tweeted by a verified account, but then two, it looks like two international sources picked it up and then Google put it in the news, you know, kind of reel at the top, right next to Wall Street Journal, right next to other verified sources. So it's, it's almost like I wish the, I wish someone like Google would have a little bit more um, discretion in who they're promoting next to a verified publication. Go, Jesse. I believe this is a top-down problem with a bottom-up solution. So it's, uh, the, you know, the broadcasters, the media, the Google, 
uh, are contributing to this this problem, and the only the only possible way to fix it is for the individuals. That's everyone to be very cautious when looking up the trust ladder and to not trust much that's coming through these mainstream. It sounds like a you know the the rant of a, a paranoid, but it's you know trust what you've experienced, verify what you haven't. Go ahead, Courtney. Rule number one, never get your news from social media. Rule number two, I mean, their dirty tricks of and false information and propaganda has been around for centuries. And during uh, political campaigns, it's always going to be around. Uh, the problem is we ha- now have AI editors or just bots that are gathering stuff based on its popularity and promoting it up to the top of the Google News chain, uh, rather than editors that are examining the source of this news information. You know, Google should only be posting stuff in their news feed that comes from the original sources from the WhiteHouse.gov uh, website directly and not, you know, oh, here's a copy. It came from WhiteHouse.gov, but it was posted on, you know, three people reposted this on Twitter. You know, no. They need to pull it directly from the original sources and verify it. Uh, and you can have a bot do that, but. Uh, the problem is it's gotten uh, the control over the fire hose has uh, gone away. And so now it's uh, a perfect playground for all the propagandists that are, want to play during a political campaign. Chris? If you're interested, there's a super interesting book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, uh, a playbook for the dark art of exploiting the media by a guy named Ryan Holiday. And he talks about his technique of injecting stories into offbeat papers and then getting slightly larger papers to report on what the offbeat paper said. And then it gets it to the point where, you know, a couple of uh, uh, lines of separation, whatever. Uh, what, was, what was the book? Anyway, uh, bots are going to have a hard time dealing with this. And and we absolutely, like Courtney said, uh, Nigel says, we absolutely have to be super cautious about what we read, where we're reading it from. And this is a guy who wrote this book like 20 years ago. Uh, CJ? A, trust me, I'm lying. And to build on what Jesse was saying about having more of a bottoms-up approach, it reminded me of when uh, when the Boston Marathon bombing occurred. I was in the newsroom working for the Chicago Tribune at the time when CNN misreported that they had someone in custody. And we didn't have any uh, boots on the ground, so we said, well, we it's a third party, so we need it verified by three other sources before we're going to go out and put our name on the line. And that day, CNN got stricken from the list of people we could use third-party verification. So we all have to kind of have that internal uh, list of who, who do I trust? There's no time when you should trust a single source. <laughs> That's like there's there and there hasn't been at any point in time in history. Um, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas said, would you build an AI driven autonomous vehicle? Courtney, would you drive one? Maybe <laughs> <laughs> would you ride in one? I would only ride, ride in, in one. one. This is a little I, one. This is like a, if you've looked at it, it's like a yeah, little um, yeah, here's it's like a school like. school. So you don't you don't have to worry about getting into wrecks because you can't sit on it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You might be able to sit on. If I had private property, uh, like a big farm, uh, like you know one of Alex's golf courses or something, uh, yeah, I might try it out. 
But if I going to put it on a public street, I don't have enough insurance that would cover myself uh, for a, a DIY type of autonomous vehicle. You have to be very controlled where you let it play. Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, just a quick glance at what we're talking about. This is um, it's a it's a coming soon to Kickstarter. Looks like a Lego-sized build of an autonomous vehicle that connects with your phone and then can putter around your living room or something like that. This is absolutely 100%. I would love to build this, but I would not. Uh, I would not kickstart it. I would wait till the actual thing comes out, and they work out the kinks with the apps and the build, and then I would buy it because this is something I'd want to do, you know, with my kid. And I wouldn't want us to do the build and then sit there and wait six months for the app to get updated and working correctly or something like that. But it looks like a very fun little, uh, you know, weekend hobbyist build. Go ahead, Nigel. Do we drive thousands of miles a year with in a semi-autonomous? thing called a Tesla, and we, uh, I'm somewhat more willing to let it drive than my wife, but we drive it and it works well. But I have to tell you two things. First of all, you have to learn to drive a semi-autonomous vehicle. It's a different mode of driving. And you still have to be aware because you have to start looking for things that it's not going to understand, like other people on the road. Um, also, I tell you that the, in Austin now, there are a lot of these Google autonomous taxis. And they, they drive around, you know, on their own with people in the back, with no one in the front. And they're fine till they meet another one at a junction. And then they just both shut down and stare at each other. Bill? That wasn't my experience. They did a lot of the tests for these autonomous vehicles with passive drivers sitting there often doing crossword puzzles. Uh, we used to run into them in Tempe and, and Mesa and Gilbert, the, the East Valley in Phoenix. That's where they did this big test. And they had a really solid record. Now, I, I used to be very familiar with Fifth Street and Mill, which is the place where they did have that one fatality where one of them hit somebody. And I will tell you, that was one of the most scary intersections because it was right before you go across the Tempe Bridge. People were gathering speed and to have somebody step off the bush encrusted median in front of a vehicle was a disaster waiting to happen. So I wrote that off a little bit. I know it made huge headlines and the rest of that, but I do think their record of successfully navigating autonomous vehicles through populated streets and things like that was pretty successful overall. So I, I think there's still a future in it. Long haul trucking and things like that, I think we'll eventually get there. Just a quick reminder, of course, you can ask questions throughout the first hour for the first or the second hour. Uh, and uh, you can vote on those questions to make sure you define how, when we ask these questions and when we actually uh, discuss them. We spend a little more time on the front side of the hour than, ha than the back side of the hour So per, per question. So if you, uh, you want to keep those going, just keep th um, voting those questions up inside of Makana. If you're not inside of Makana, you can ask questions using this little QR code uh, or uh, yeah, go to askofficehours.com. Let's go to the next question. Next question from Vic Hernandez in Springfield, Missouri. Was there ever a video released of the remote's Leave It Studio sessions? Good, Bill. No, and it's probably my fault. Um, I, you know, I was originally, I'd raised my hand to, to edit this piece, and it got a little bit off course in that there was a bunch of stuff shot before I got involved, and then there was a bunch of stuff that I kind of 
pushed everybody toward shooting. I really liked all that, but I could never justify in my brain how to get the two parts of the puzzle together. And it kind of locked me up. Then I got really busy on that. Uh, we've got a lot of good footage and someday I hope to get inspired to try to turn this into something. But it's a little bit of a uh, started in one direction and then completely went in another direction. And I'm not sure if I can still to this day, as long as I've been making video, figure out how to marry those two without making anybody really angry at me. Oh, maybe we should put them up somewhere. So maybe we'll look at a way to put them up so that some folks can take take their shot at them. We'll have to talk to the band that about that. That would be that. great. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the footage pool is pretty big. I will just say that because we shot yeah. a lot of it. A lot of people shot it in pretty high def. Some of the imagery is gorgeous. And so, yeah. But if you have a lot of storage and you want to take a shot at it, let me know and I'll throw it up someplace. Next question. Uh, Roberto Barrow in Plymouth Meeting uh, asks, I keep hearing about decimators. What are they and what are they used for? Jesse? Um, in its simplest form, a decimator is uh, a device that uh, downsamples or resamples a signal from, from one sample rate to another sample rate. And I'm hoping somebody else on the panel can jump in with a, you know, a deeper dive into the technical side of it. What we use decimators for on production is converting HDMI to SDI or SDI to HDMI. And we do this because uh, HDMI only goes so far and SDI goes much further. So if we're in a huge room and we've got S uh, HDMI signals coming in, we convert them to SDI and then leave them as SDI or return them to HDMI once they get to the vision mixer. But it's, it's a way to change your signal from something that is not conformed to your pipeline to something that is conformed to your pipeline. Very, very useful. And we always just keep a, you know, a bag full of these when we go out to shoot. Guy? Yeah, they're just super handy problem solvers. You should always have one of these in your bag if you're going somewhere uh, that requires uh, long runs, especially. It, like uh, Jesse said, it, it's a converter, so you, you can go HDMI or SDI in, and then you could flip it back out so you could go HDMI in and back out, but with scaling. So if you needed to convert 30 frames per second to 24 for some reason, you can go that route. It's also used as a DA sometimes, like you might feed SDI in and you need to drive a couple monitors. You can you can see here that you have outs, multiple outs. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so that's uh, the problem solver, the Swiss Army knife that you should have in your kit. That's 295 bucks, and a lot of us carry these things around uh, in our bags. Courtney? Uh, yeah, it started out uh, from the decimators that we're referring to is not a generic name. It's a, a company that used to be called Red Byte Systems. And uh, as we were showing, they make a lot of these little boxes. They also make uh, some uh, open... Uh, uh, type cards that, that go into racks uh, for doing all these conversion types. But the little boxes, um, uh, the mini converters are the ones we're talking about. And they're really handy to have because not only, they for a long time, they were the only ones that would convert frame rate. The uh, Blackmagic ones would convert uh, 1080p to you know 720p to 1080p and so on. But they wouldn't convert frame rate. They would be the frame rate in equals the frame rate out. And the decimators were only ones that actually would resample the video and put it out in not only a scaled down or scaled up version, but also or converted from HDMI to SDI. But it would also could change the frame rate from 24p to 30p to 29.97, etc. And the nice ones is these things are built like tanks. They have. Um, uh, cast aluminum boxes. Some of them used to have uh, cycloac, uh, you know, type of uh, 
uh, plastic, which is like they used to make football helmets out of. But uh, now I think they've gone to cast aluminum on most of them. And they have this little LCD readout right here that, that tells you what format and flavor the incoming video is, regardless of whether it's coming in over SDI or HDMI. And it it will tell you on the LCD what you have its output set to, so you can convert and scale and, and deal with uh, a lot of things. And the HX and the Cross both have, the Cross has built-in uh, uh, test uh, test pattern generator in addition to the MDHX, which is just the conversion. And it also works as a distribution amplifier. If you hit SDIN, it comes out of these, you can configure it so it has four SDI out duplicates reclocked. So it, it has a lot of functions. It's cost about 300 Oop, lost you there, Courtney. Cost about three hundred bucks for the cheaper ones, and uh, uh, I think it's a little four hundred bucks for the uh, or four ninety five for the one the twelve k ones, for the four k ones. But um, uh, they're very handy to have, like I say, everyone says as a tool in your toolkit. Yeah, go ahead, guy. Yeah, one of the things I forgot to mention, I'm sitting in front of three of them, so they're they're used all around me. But uh, to flip my teleprompter when I upgraded my monitor to a larger size, it didn't have the built-in flip. And I looked high and low for software that could do it. And at the end of the day, I just threw a decimator at it because it could flip it. The other thing is it's got a cool little rack in, inside the box when it ships as a, a little um, ear, a rack mount ear. So we put these in racks all the time to be able to convert signals like for the web presenter, it only has SDI in. So I have one sitting in front of my... Um, my web presenter to convert the Zcam. So you're seeing me passing through one right now. So they work, they work well. And if you can't find one, sometimes they're out of stock. The um, data video DAC 70 is a good alternative. That's another one that can save you because it also has a VGA input that you could flip to HDMI or SDI. So good problem solver DAC 70. And I'll put a link in the chat to that one as well. Next question. Another one from the QR Drop, Roger Martin in Tonto Basin, Arizona, looking for an app that will take a music video that's in Spanish, translated into visual lyrics in English, so I can superimpose uh, on the video. I'd like to have the lyrics uh, have this type of style, and he's got a link there to something on YouTube that'll give you that info. You know, I think that things like opus.ai might might be able to do some of these things. Um, and there's a couple different tools that are similar to that um, that uh, that could could actually work there. Um, another way to do this is they bring it into your editing app and use there's a variety of transcription tools that will do this. Now, you should know what the language is and you may have to make some corrections if you're using AI tools to solve this because of the real way to do this is send it to someone to translate it, but that's going to be expensive <laughs> for the song. For three minutes, it actually won't be that expensive. Uh, it might cost you, if you were doing one song and you sent it to somebody, they'd probably send you back an SRT file and it would probably cost you about a hundred bucks, you know, to do this. So just kind of put it in perspective. Uh, there are companies like pr production transcripts that would just send this back to you ready to insert into your system and it would be 100% accurate um, for probably $100. You pay by the minute and a three and a half minute song will be very short. <laughs> we used to send hours and hours and hours of footage to them. And if you don't put it on a rush, it's not very hard to get that done. Um, but you can do it automatically as well. Um, I use uh, a program called simonsays.ai. And so that's inside of Final Cut. Um, and, uh, and the other thing to know is that you might, you know, and so uh, simonsays.ai will, I think it's like, a hundred languages that it supports. So it will, and it will build those. It will actually insert them. If you use it as an extension, it'll insert them back directly uh, into, um, and you can stack them all up inside of Final Cut to make that actually happen. I know that Premiere and Resolve will automatically 
build transcriptions for you um, in English. I don't know what the other language supports are yet, but we can expect both of them to support those in, in, in the not too distant future. Next question. Uh, Marley Zenumera in Woblo, Missouri, I believe. Hope I got that close. For reference, the earlier question wasn't about Ian's camera looking like it was focusing and defocusing in the Krasny show. I keep having the same problems. Would really like to learn more about fixing it or if Alex has a way to post in post to fix it, too. That's another QR drop question. You go, Jesse. Uh, there is currently no way to refocus a shot that was uh, filmed out of focus that I know of. I imagine I there is a small I, I, team of engineers working on an AI solution that'll yeah, be I, awful in a year and okay in three. Uh, yeah, but, I, don't think, I, I don't think this yeah. is a question about that. I, th here's the problem with this. is This came in through the drop, um, through the QR drop, and it, the, these questions got split up. And so the, the question was really about, not about a post-production issue, but really that in live, we had someone that we were interviewing that is going in and out of focus. And that's just because the, if they move around a lot, if the center of focus for a, for a, a webcam suddenly shows the background, it's liable to focus to the background. Um, so the cameras that we have are pretty good at going, I'm going to follow your face. You know, so Sony will follow your face around. It doesn't matter whether you're center frame or not. As long as it can see your eyes, it's going to try to focus on you. Uh, whereas if, um, so you can see for me, like I can do a lot of things, but as soon as I cover my eyes, you'll see that it, well, maybe you will. You'll see it drop out and, and focus on my on my hand. And as soon as it sees my eyes again, it'll come back. Um, but it will, um, the so I think that what the, the issue is here is that, a lot of the, the webcams, especially older ones, um, may not do that. So I think the problem that he had there was not so much can we do it in the in post, but during a live it was bouncing back and forth. And the best solution, in my opinion, is a, a second, you know, a third party uh, camera with you know some kind of web control where you can set the focus. The problem is you turn any webcam control on on an Apple on a built in um, uh, camera. And Apple will immediately turn it off. Like you have to restart your computer to get it turned back on again. It's a security feature. So, uh, so you have to have an external camera if you want to control it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and then the solution is to uh, set the focus and then put it on manual focus once it's once your subject is in focus. If they're moving in and out, then they're going to move in and out of focus a little bit. But that might be preferable to having it breathe constantly and this happens on on uh, like uh, Alex was saying on a lot of these cheaper cameras that have just contrast based autofocus and if you have a detailed background behind you it'll see that detail and want to increase the contrast and it'll do that until it sees more detail on the face and then it'll shift to the face and it'll just kind of ping pong back and forth and it gets confused all the time so Turn off autofocus. Make sure the person is sitting in the folk where the focus is set, and tell them try not to move closer and further away, and then it should stop breathing. Then, good guy. Yeah, a lot of times it's it as Courtney said, it's it's searching, it's hunting for certain things, and low low contrast uh, can be helped with lighting. So a big just right off the bat, it, it's looking for straight lines, it, the, at least the older technology. So if, if you have a, a C920, for example, it's looking for straight lines. And if you take uh, a person that's well lit, so like now I have, you know, a, a, def a definitive line here and it would, it would, it would grab that right away. So uh, two things, one, one is uh, light your subject or have them uh, use some existing lights, practical lights that are in their facility. The other thing is um, give them a monitor that they can see themselves so they can see what's going on or have them change their attire if it's a, a certain uh, 
like a black shirt with a black background, low contrast, it's just going to blend and it's going to hunt and it's going to sit there and shift the whole show. So try to prevent it with good lighting. Next question. Georgie Bortnick in Swissvale, New Hampshire. Yesterday, Alex said he was surprised to see the large number of concurrent viewers in YouTube for the iPhone update show. What were the metrics for that and how did they affect important things like the average view times and so forth and key viewing, key viewing moments? Can we see the graphs, he wonders. I'll take a look at bringing up the graphs. I probably wouldn't do it on during YouTube, a YouTube, YouTube record, but I might do it on a Sunday if you ask. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at those graphs. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the the concurrent didn't, I'll have to go back and look. I don't think it affected, it greatly affected the average view time, which is actually usually pretty long on our show. Um, if I remember correctly, the average view time was over 30 minutes, which is a, in YouTube world is a very long time <laughs> you know, to, to have a average view time that high. And so, um, but I'll, but I can't remember pre precisely on that. I was mostly interested in the, uh, again, the concurrent. Concurrent, remember, is the equilibrium of people entering and exiting. So you may have a, a larger total number in the room of, you know, uh, two, three, four hundred, five hundred, whatever it is, whatever, or five thousand. Um, but it, it, the question is, is that um, how, you know, for, for us, how long they stay and making sure that they, the average view time is over 15 minutes is usually our goal. Um, usually we, I think that office hours kind of averages between 20 and 30 minutes a uh, uh, average view time for most most things. And again, the our experience over thousands of events on YouTube, the average on YouTube is about six minutes. <laughs> so 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 the uh, so um, uh, so we we look at uh, um, those things there. Um, the the but you know it's just an when something changes, I pay attention. Like it doesn't. It's it's not so much that the concurrent is that important, but when something changes, I go, oh, I wonder what happened there. You know, and so that's what we we're talking about. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. He says, when is it best to use Redco Audio or a similar vendor to have cabling built versus making your own? And he has a link to Redco. Courtney. Yeah, Redco's in the East Coast uh, cable supplier, does custom cables. I use Pacific Radio, Packrat's No Shorts. I've spoken with them before because they're in Burbank here, and so I can go into their store and actually browse for a lot of common uh, short cables, patch cables, unusual connectors on either side, or uh, the super skinny uh, high bandwidth uh, SDI cables. Uh, but if you're going to have them custom made, you can give uh, either one of these cable companies uh, your specifications. And I would never make my own if they're Fisher connectors or Limo connectors or any small diameter connector that has more than one or two 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 wires connecting inside of it because soldering those is a nightmare and you have to use you know a microscope half the time to do it you can never get the you know you get it soldered then you realize you left the collar off and you have to unsolder it all and start all over again it's just pay the money it's fairly expensive but have those custom made or find them they know what cables are a pain to make and they make up a lot of those and have them in stock especially little patch cables for DSLRs to monitors things like that that take uh, Fisher connectors or uh, Limo connectors so check check those custom cable companies first. They may have them in stock. Okay. Yeah, we use Redco quite a bit. Uh, I love their online configurator. So you can go in here and you can choose, let's say, for instance, you wanted a uh, XLR cable. You can say that uh, I want a single channel. Uh, and once you say choose this type, you could you could tell it what, what do you want, like a balanced uh, mic line. And then you could say you want some Canary cable. Um, 
um, standard mic cable, then you could say your exact length, use this cable. And so you could see how detailed you can go. Uh, and what do you want on the left side? What kind of connector do you want on the left side versus the right side, uh, uh, angled or a straight? And so if you're good at that, uh, you know, sourcing all these parts and, and soldering, then, uh, you know, build them yourself. But for $11 and 78 cents, that's, <laughs> you know, like, come on, how many do you need? And what's your time worth? So Redco is an awesome resource. I think everybody should have this bookmarked and ready to, to order. And I think it's even more than just what, what your time's worth. It's, it's, are you good enough to do it reliably and know that it's going to give you the, the absolute, you know, these are people who do this every single day, all day. And I know that even I, who did this every single day, all day for, you know, a year, um, that was 30 years ago. <laughs> and I respect the fact that, that I have to kind of re rebuild those, those skill sets, um, you know, to, to make that actually happen. And so, you know, Redco is a good one online. Uh, you know, I, we had the cables that we use for some of our event coverage have been, um, that were made by Gotham Sound. And so a lot of the companies that, that do this uh, or rent a lot of rental lo locations will build those cables for you. Gotham Sound in New York. Uh, we also, for another event in, for the last Seagraph, I had some audio cables built by audio department um, in, uh, in Los Angeles. And so there's a, there's, there's a lot of places that will put this together, but, but Redco does a great job online. Next question. Up next is another QR drop question. This time it comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. And he says, uh, oh, I'm sorry, David Brady in New York City. I had an old... There. Hold on one second. Let's see what Did happened we? here. All right, yeah. Let uh, you bring it back in here. Uh, oh, maybe not. I Something happened there. All right. Yeah, I, I saw a double click too. But anyway, David Brady in New York City is what's on the top of my list now. Had an old digitization of a VHS tape and wanted to see what kind of enhancement can be made. AVC Labs AI video enhancer was pretty slick while it took a bit to process. Any other tools there are to consider? And he's got a link to that one. Good guy. Yeah, I know David Brady has some of the tools that are the the big iron, the the old school TBC correctors and things like that. But if you're just going SD to SD, um, that, that's pretty easy to do analog to analog. Uh, if you can take it into post, like this ABC Labs, the one to look at is Topaz Labs, and they have some AI stuff, and it'll even go up to 8K. It'll take a while to process. Uh, I had a local sound guy here, uh, Mickey knows him, Charlie. He did a ton of old jazz tapes. Uh, that he was super proud of how well that AI scaling worked in Topaz Labs. And if you look at the price, it's pretty expensive. But if you uh, get on their email list, you can get uh, for half price around uh, Thanksgiving, Black Friday. Good, Bill. Just a quick note, one of my engineering friends and I had a long discussion about this maybe 10 years ago when we were thinking about preserving a lot of stuff. And if they're VHS tapes coming off, I do think people uh, occasionally, and if you want to do this, is up to you, but they make like ProRes copies of VHS tapes. And he is an actual engineer, works in the video space, and he did all the calculations. And it turns out that even the encoding for H.264 can maximize the bits coming on, the, the signal coming off of there in a way that's virtually lossless. So I stopped trying to save copies of old VHS stuff into really high-res formats. It was way bigger than I was ever going to need. I did most of them to H.264, and to be honest with you, the, the few times I've had to pull them back off and put them in a modern project, as long as you don't try to blow them up, uh, they look fine. Particularly, I tend to put them in a window saying that this is VHS. Works great for that. So just saving, saving some data space if you need to. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Whatever became of DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, pioneered many computers after being founded in 1957 and was acquired by Compact in 1998. 
Nigel? Short answer is a compact got acquired by HP and thus disappeared. Longer, slightly uh, answer is that DEC did uh, create the mini computer and there was uh, a period of time when everyone thought mini computers would take over from mainframes. Um, we used to joke that the strategy problem with that is if you had to pull a plow, you can choose an oxen or a thousand chickens, and it was very much the thousand chicken strategy. Um, the other thing that really happened to mini computers and really took deck down was the internet, because in the days of computing, there was a lot of talk about a three-tier strategy, a client, a mid middle computer, and then a server. What the internet did, of course, was make the middle one almost uh, unnecessary. There really wasn't a role for the mini computer in that world. Uh, we sort of ended up with edge systems, but they're slightly more complicated. But the mini computer that was going to take, and I learned to program on a deck PDP-8, so I, I feel some sense of loss there. Um, like uh, many things, uh, it got lost in the time and the technology changes. <laughs> I am going to have to ask Midjourney to draw me a picture of a plow being um, pulled by a thousand chickens. Thousand chickens. Um, next question. Marilee Mira of Weeblo, Missouri, back again with this one, which is another QR question. Large concurrent numbers to YouTube were said about the iPhone show. How does this work for here? Was it SEO or a different kind of boost? Did it get a lot of new subs? Please share the data and graphs so we can see that what people watched most for longest. Thanks. So, so much interest that. in our yeah. stats. Um, uh, we'll, we'll talk probably more about, this is more of an inside baseball thing, so we'll probably talk more about these in detail if you ask them on Sundays. Um, but uh, you know, we didn't do anything. Like, that's why we were interested in it. We were like, oh, something happened that we didn't notice. You know, like we, and I think it was just a, a subject matter that people were interested in. So I don't think there was anything, you know, there's no, we're not doing anything specific. Uh, we're doing what we do every day. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so it was just, just again, a fascinating, um, you know, int an interesting anomaly um, that we that we now are paying attention to. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. In my experience with ChatGPT, it can generate prose that is hard to distinguish from human-made content. In light of the fake White House release, should LLM, large language model makers, add controls on output distribution and or ID verification tracking before use? Yo, Jesse. I truly believe that this is a bottoms-up solution. You can put whatever watermark you want on your AI-generated content, but if the average person doesn't know, doesn't understand how to read that watermark or what it means, you still have the same problem. This this goes back to education and active engagement from people who are looking at the news or any content, really. Good, Courtney. I don't think there should be any uh, limits on doing prose or fiction or creating anything that is used for entertainment because, you know, hey, it's making up stuff. That's fine. Every fiction writer does that uh, on their own, and it can it can write pretty interesting uh, uh, creative prose novels. There are people that are releasing, you know, 50 novels a day on Amazon self-publishing. In fact, they had to put in new controls to prevent people from self-publishers from posting more than 50 or something per week or per day. So it's getting very prolific out there and hard to tell the difference, but who's it going to harm if you're willing to pay for an interesting AI-written book? Why not? Just don't depend on it for accurate news or financial information or anything reference. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. 
So I'm facing this a little bit right now. Most of you know that I've been involved in audiobook recording as a narrator for a while now, and I'm starting to see things that are pretty clearly AI written. Some of them are better than the human written thing. As a matter of fact, I've got a short novel right now that I've got a contract on doing, and I'm pretty sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it was written by AI. It's actually quite lovely, and I'm enjoying the process. As long as everybody knows what the game is, and as long as I th I'm kind of with Courtney on this. As long as it's fiction, as long as you're not trying to fool anybody by saying this was written by somebody, I'm enjoying the fact that if that it turns out to be correct, that means there will never be any copyright claims on the work that I do in terms of narrating the story because there's no author involved. Um, you know, AI generated stuff is not copyrightable. So it kind of turned out this is a short project. I'm doing it because it's fun. I enjoyed the script. But it, it has its place. That's all I can say. Yeah, it, I don't I just don't think that you should trust something to say that it's verified. <laughs> like you just have to verify it, um, you know, and I think that you, we have to do more of the legwork to do that. And again, I, I will argue that we've always needed to do a little bit of that and take everything that we see with a grain of salt. Um, and I speak as someone who has you know, willfully manipulated what, what people see, um, you know, and, and set in, and not, not necessarily lied, but not necessarily laid things out in a way that made the most sense. Not me on, on air, but I've built shows that appear a certain way so that, you know, because it, you know, and, and when I say that, I mean, we move the cam, there's not enough people showed up. So we move the cameras up and point them down. Like that is manipulating what you think is happening. You know, there's 50 people showing up. We expected 5,000. We're going to group them together. We're going to lift the camera up and we're going to turn it down. And now you're going to think that there's a huge crowd there because we didn't tell you that the rest of the building is empty. You know, and so the thing is, is that those are the kind of things that we do every single day when we're doing production because it makes our clients look better. And that's our job, you know. And so there's all of these things that, that happen. And so you, you just need, you need to always do a before and after of what, what was shot on camera, just do a search for what was shot on camera versus what what happened. And you'll see these crazy shots. And it happens especially around things like protests and stuff like that, because the protests don't generate as many people as you thought. And so you figure out a way to package it um, in a way that that uh, makes it look bigger than it was, you know, those kinds of things, um, or make it smaller than it was, <laughs> if you don't, if, if you're from the other side. And so these are all things that, that get done. And so um, you, you just have to, I mean, I, I think that this whole swirl up of AI um, is is a distraction from the fact that that once anybody puts anything, you know, once you abstract anything from reality, it's not the reality anymore. It's just an abstraction of it. Next question. Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada says, are there any good books on wires and types of and their names? And that's another QR drop. Uh, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Well, I name all my wires. This is Billy. And uh, there's Tommy over there. No. <laughs> but where's Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat. If you want to find out about cabling, uh, I suggest you go look at uh, Belden, who's one of the largest cable manufacturers out there. And they have a technical, uh, a technical information publication that's a PDF that you can get. And it's got all kinds of information on conductors, insulations and jackets, uh, types and, and how they relate to each other, their shielding and armoring and their packaging and all these kinds of reference information, lots of data in charts 
parts and uh, you can compare cable types and gauge types to current carrying uh, uh, capabilities, the number of conductors, etc. Uh, so you can learn all about uh, different types of cables from that technical uh, uh, white paper that pub- is published by Belden. It's available on Belden's uh, website, B-L-D-E-N. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, up with this one. How good is Zoho, Z-O-H-O? They have meeting rooms now, so it must be some uh, up technology for meetings. CJ? I haven't specifically used the meetings uh, module within Zoho, but I did run a Zoho work within uh, our organization for a few years. The one thing I'll say about them is that they want to be an everything app, and much like a, a diner, that has way too many things on the menu or a restaurant that has a a huge menu, you start to be worried about, can they really support this many things and be good at them? Uh, So my only caution with, with Zoho would be just be careful because their, their marketing is really good. You're going to see them on the billboard at the airport, but the support is lacking and everything kind of seems okay, but it's not fully baked. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. During the pandemic, there were many initiatives to support out-of-work production crew. Now, should we be doing more to nurture the next generation of production professionals and diversify the talent pool, including neurodivergent and disabled? Jesse? Uh, Yes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of thinking behind why we're uh, so aggressive about doing exactly that in our business. Uh, I I get me for free. I want to hire as many not me's as I can when I'm building out a team. I want people to be as different from me as humanly possible because that gives me more perspectives on every project that I'm working on. It is a terrific benefit to hire as many not you's on a production as you can possibly find. Next question. Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas says, looking back when Chris Fenwick was working on Yan Can Cook, uh, using the same equipment, would uh, you do it differently now and how? Chris? What a weird question. Listen, the equipment we used, the cameras we used when we did Yan were from the late 70s, maybe very early 80s. It took the engineering department 30 minutes per camera to turn it on. Like literally 30 minutes per camera to warm up the tubes. Partially that. Mm -hmm. But, but they were put every morning, they would pull extender cards out and they'd pull the boards out and they diddle, you know, and there's an engineer and a two guys, one guy at the camera, one guy in engineering, uh, Let's go for the uh, black bias, and I want to raise that one dB. Nope. Okay, two. Mm, back that off. All right, now we're going to go for the green, you know, gain bias. It was like 30 minutes per camera. Four-camera show. Those guys had to arrive two hours before anybody else showed up. Would we change? No, I like that process. We should totally work like that forever. Of no. course we would do it different. Plus, those cameras were standard def. I will say the pedestals the cameras were on oh, yeah. were fantastic. There's a lot to be said for a true studio pedestal, like a three-stage pedestal. Um, so if, if, Yan, if Martin was chopping, the dance to get the cameras from... The wide shot, if you look at the wide shot and you don't see a bunch of cameras. Did you, did you have a jib? 
No, that's ridiculous. You don't need a jib for crap like that. So no, good. but but a camera that can go super high. So what was really funny, Alex, is, and I'm sorry, I could talk about this for too long. You're the wide shot, you see no cameras. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, go ahead. No, just kidding. Go ahead. The wide go. shot, you see no cameras. And action. And the, the first shot was a camera full ped high behind right. the audience bleachers running with heads in the foreground. And then we dissolved to a shot of Martin running out from the side the side dining room, which, by the way, had $100,000 worth of Chinese art in it just to kind of be seen on a couple of shots. And all of a sudden, all four cameras would come into the, the moat between Martin's desk and the audience. And here, if you were in the audience, you're like, oh, this is going to be great. I get to watch. And all of a sudden, you're looking around you know, camera operators' butts because you all you see is the back of guys and, and their cameras. Right. So, yeah, it was... And the picture... Ugh. The, <laughs> this, you could do better. You could do better with your iPhone. This is so much better. It's yeah. to, There's no such thing as the good old days of video production. Yeah. It was awful. 30 <laughs> minutes per camera. <laughs> uh, coming up uh, uh, later, we're going to be doing talking about uh, business hindsight in just a second. SPX, our, our friend from Tuomo, uh, our friend Tuomo is coming to talk about SPX uh, tomorrow. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we've got Practical EQ on Wednesday. On Thursday, we're going to have a practical guide to interviews, exactly how to actually set those up. And of course, IBC coverage breakdown on Friday. Let's go ahead and jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the uh, second hour, and we're here to talk about hindsight. <laughs> what do we wish? And for the for the panelists, go ahead and raise your hands if you'd like to talk about some of that hindsight. Um, the uh, but uh, what what do you wish someone had told you when you were starting your business? Uh, and um, and so that you know, for us to kind of go around the horn and talk a little bit about those things because I think that it is a. Um, I, a lot of us don't talk about these things. You know, a lot of times you don't want to talk about them <laughs> you know, you, because you just feel like, but I think that these are the important questions. And I often think about, you know, I, you know, I had a company, I had a couple companies and, you know, they've gone from, you know, they, the last one, you know, took a pretty heavy dive and, uh, and there were a lot of things that we learned and a lot of things that when you're in the middle of it all, um, that you, you think that things are a certain way and they just aren't. You know, like they just aren't that way, you know, and, and, uh, and I think that it was important, you know, I, I, an example is, you know, we had a pretty large line of credit and we had to put up a lot of personal, you know, guarantees for that credit, which put a lot of pressure on us. And I was talking to a friend of mine who has a much larger, twice the size of my, that went at the time had twice the, the credit that I had. And, um, and I said, well, you know, you know, my house is on the line. And he said, well, why did you do that? And I'm like, cause I had to, that's the only way you could get the line of credit. He goes, no, no, no. <laughs> you got a, you get a line of credit for two thousand dollars. I was like, "What do you do with two thousand dollars?" I mean, that's like that's like some little shred of something that I have to do. I can't. And he goes, "That's fine." And you start rolling it, and you just roll it and roll it and roll it and roll it and roll it, and they'll keep on. If you keep paying it back, they're going to keep on asking you to do more. And before you know it, you've got two million dollars of line of credit and no collateral <laughs> because you've proven over a very long, now you think that takes 20 years, you know, like, but it's not, it's not something that you do overnight. And, and, and that was the thing that we didn't quite get our head around. That's just one little example of that, of that process. You know, the other, the other one that, that sticks out in my head is that you think that, you know, you're having trouble when, when we were having trouble with my company, 
um, you think that that the bank's going to come and take everything immediately. Like as soon as things go wrong, um, and what we learned over a very long time talking to the bank, because I spent a year and a half talking to the bank as we kind of worked through it, is they really don't want you to go under. You're not useful to them anymore. <laughs> Like, you know, they're willing to be all, they'll do all kinds of things to be, to flex with you and figure things out. And, and at the end, I think the bank was more interested in me staying in business than I was, you know? And so, um, and so I think that those are the kind of things that, uh, you know, banks, you know, but you realize that everyone will, will, everything's much more malleable than you thought it was oftentimes. And I think that's the big thing is that everything is much more flexible and certain things are more rigid um, than you than you think they are. And I think that the, the goal of today is to is to kind of talk through some of those things so that it, it kind of exposes some of those things to think about. And we'll start with Chris. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's multiple ways of looking at business and having, you know, being post.com, you know, by a couple of decades now, you know, we went through an era of people that were, you know, building giant empires and they were doing it quite quickly. And it, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all, Alex, you know, putting your house on the line because you need a bunch of money to buy a bunch of stuff to do a bunch of things. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that. And there are many people that have gotten extremely successful. Uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, Elon Musk, you know, by going big, shooting big. Um, However, what you also want to think about is the fact that while you're running this business, you're also trying to live a life. And you're trying to enjoy the world that we live in, the people around us, the children, the family around us. And when you are going at a thousand miles an hour with you know enormous lines of credit and all of the burdens of the world on your shoulder, can you really enjoy that life? Um, in my businesses, I have always chosen very purposely to not try to be big. I don't want to be big. I don't want to have a ton of employees. I don't want that extra burden. What I want is a job that I can't get fired from because I'm the boss. And so, and so I've always aimed at my businesses being such that if I were to pull the clientele out immediately and just say, no more clients ever want to work with me again, I would be left strapped with the burden of what I call a really expensive and possibly irresponsible hobby. Everything that I have sitting in front of me, I would own even if I wasn't in this business, most of it, even if I wasn't in this business because I enjoy it. But I'm not so overbuilt that my whole world comes crushing down if the if the work goes away. That's my thought process of how to, you know, build a business. Other people do it another way, but I think it's important to know that that process is completely valid and has been quite successful for me for four decades now. Go ahead, Bill. In my early, early days when I thought, you know, I should probably just keep doing, people are calling me, so I should probably just start a business. And um, back in those days, which you got advice, I thought, well, who, who knows about that? Oh, Chamber of Commerce knows about that. So I went to some Chamber of Commerce mixers, and they gave me the traditional process, right, which is, well, you need your team, you need your attorney, and you need your CPA, and you need this and you need that to do business. And it all made perfect sense. I businesses who were stable had all of these checkboxes checked. But I realized pretty quickly that part of what they were there to do was to be a professional association and find work for all these other kinds of uh, 
helpful administrators, and that really that's not the hard core of it. You really fundamentally, if you're going to start working for yourself, you need two things, I think. You need to generate sales and you need to generate cash flow, which you learn very quickly are not the same thing. But if you have continuing people who want you to work for them and they are paying their bills such that you can keep up with bills, then you can grow based on basically that. You do, as you get bigger, need to attend to all these other things. But the lesson I learned pretty early on was that the business is always wishing that it had primacy in your life. And if you want that, if you want to become a business person, then you should take this very seriously and learn to do all those things. And you should look at your numbers. They're the metrics of success or failure, health or ill health in your business. But if you end up doing that and become the business person, Just understand that if you got into it through a passion, you wanted to be creative, you wanted to make videos, you wanted to be a recording engineer, whatever it is, you will constantly be pulled away from that passion toward becoming yet another person in business. People have to balance that. And I think this reflects back to what Chris was saying before. Look at what you really want your life to be. And, you know, What you are is what you spend the bulk of your time doing. So if you spend the bulk of your time in ledgers, keeping track of the money, then you are a ledger reader. And there is nothing wrong with that. And that really does contribute to making sure you don't make vast financial mistakes. But if your passion truly lies in something more creative, then you're going to have to figure out how to balance this desire to do something that no one has done before, to look at the blank page and fill it with something that has some value and then get that onto the market and somehow sustain yourself through your income for that. But they are not the same things. And so, you know, it really is true. And sometimes in business, the more you succeed, the less you get to do what you actually love to do. And you just should pay attention to that. Balance is important. Chris said that. Good, Courtney. Yeah, one thing I learned uh, in hindsight is that if you're an entrepreneur, let's say you have a good idea or something you want to market, but you don't have the funds or the business acumen to do it, uh, don't bring on partners. Partners are death. That's what I learned, especially a three-way partnership, equal three-way partnership. Because if you're the entrepreneurial one with all the IDs and all the intellectual property, then the two business guys that you bring on as partners will eventually get together and vote you out and steal your intellectual property. That's what I learned. So three-way partnership, bad. If you can maintain 100, if you want to go into business, hire some professional businessmen to be salaried and run the company. And, uh, and, but don't give them a controlling interest of the corporation because you will be forced out uh, if, the, if whatever widget or gadget that you've invented takes off and becomes very popular. The more, the more a company is bringing in, the more impetus there is for uh, uh, strife within the company and takeover bids. And, you know, there's all kinds of business uh, forced takeovers that have happened, uh, leveraged buyouts, those kind of things. Just ask Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak how much, how they enjoyed being uh, entrepreneurs that spread into billion-dollar companies. You know, Wozniak's probably doing all right, but Jobs got forced out for many years. And so be careful. It's a cutthroat world out there. And uh, try and uh, gird yourself with a lot of, uh, hire a good lawyer, 
uh, who doesn't take a percentage of anything that you make and pay, has a has a good fee, but but you just pay him off and make sure all of your contracts are written so that uh, uh, they don't have huge loopholes in them. Yeah, I'm, and I, I admit that I'm on the opposite. I won't start a business if I don't have partners because I can't, I, I can't do it all. You know, I can't do it all, and I don't have the expertise. So I, I look for who's going to fill the expertise in different areas, whether it's finance or logistics or other things, just because I, I'm like, I don't know how I would stand it up otherwise. Uh, go ahead, Nigel. So I think there's one uh, lesson that you have to learn that if you don't, you're going to fail. And all the philosophical and personal stuff that we've talked about so far is all good and important. And I want to tell you a little story about a company called Pets.com that uh, IPO'd for just under $100 million and 342 days later, less than a year, was insolvent. And uh, we can decide whether that was a good business idea or not. We'll, we'll talk about that in other questions. But here's the thing I remember most. With nine months, le- nine months before it collapsed... It was spending a million dollars a month on marketing. Now, I'm not a great mathematician, but I could spot the point where that crosses over and when it did cross over. So the lesson I think for all of us is the single most important thing in your business is cash. Because you have to pay people and you have to do things with us. And, and, And particularly if you have people working for you, payroll will be the thing that keeps you up at night more than anything else for moral as well as financial reasons. So if there's any lesson that I've learned from a bunch of businesses and startups that I've been involved with is every day put a piece of paper on the wall in front of your desk with how much cash you have left. And do it every day. And even today, I, you know, I run a company that's about $100 million. Every day, I get an email from my finance team about how much cash we have in the bank. And I go to an Excel spreadsheet, and I put that number in, just so I physically know every day how much money, how much cash we have left. Because you can have the best business and the best idea and thousands of clients, and you can be an award-winning business, and you can still be insolvent because you run out of cash. Now, we can talk about why that happens, but that's the most important lesson. And the and the, the interesting thing that you think of is you think you want to have explosive growth, but you can get ahead of your you can get ahead of your um, receivables, you know. And so, like, for instance, one of the things that happened for us is that we're a little company of, of six and we got hooked. So this is the thing you have to be careful of is we got hooked up with a really big company, Google, and we were doing like little little things. Um, you know, and we were doing about a show every month or every two or three weeks and it was fine. And we were, you know, just kind of clipping along. And then suddenly Google wanted us to do all of these events, you know, very, very quickly. And we realized that we weren't going to get the The problem is Google is on one term <laughs> and everybody else is on another term. And, we're, and we were doubling for a couple months, we were doubling every month, you know, in what we were doing. And so what we had to do was um, uh, factor our invoices, which is a really kind of, I don't know, embarrassing thing to do, in my opinion. So you, you go to a bank and basically what they do is they give you the money based on the invoice. Um, you know, so you invoice it out, they'll give you the money. They charge you 5% a month <laughs> to do this. So it's, and they know, and they'll tell you right up front, we know that this is only going to happen for a little while. Like they're, they, everybody that works with them generally works with them for three to six months and then they're, then they move on because they're in some kind of pinch. But to know that it's out there that to, to do that. Now, what we did is we just increased all of our costs by all our prices by, by 5%. And, and, you know, like so that we would cover that, you know, for at least for that month that we had to hold on to that or, and, um, and so we, uh, but it was the hard part about it was that, 
now our clients, even the older clients, now have to like inter- build a new payment system to this bank because you have to do, it's all or nothing. It's not like I can factor some of the money and not factor others. They don't want you to go around them, right? You know, because they, you know, they're taking a risk on you. And so that factoring though was, I mean, it's the only way we got through that pinch. It was about a three month, a three or four month pinch that we had to factor through it. And then at that point we were at a different you know, level um, that was that was there, but it was a it was a painful thing to do, and again, it does come down to uh, cash flow. You know, and and you can it, it can be something that isn't so much that you have all this you have all this work coming in, but if your clients aren't paying on time and you have too much extended, um, the uh, you end up in a situation where you know you just don't have enough cash to make the next the next payments. You know, and we came pretty close. I mean, we and again, that's what things like a line of credit can even out if you if you don't get it, let it get ahead of you, um, is that it it allows you to make payments quickly on things and then be able to pull all that money in. It costs money to have that, but it also allows you to smooth a bunch of those things out if you can if you don't let it get ahead of you. What got ahead of us was that you know. We weren't having as much revenue. <laughs> we still had a lot of overhead. And there's this this kind of weight that you have to have that, you know, what we were built for because for years, and I'm, you know, a, a solid five or six years, we were just as busy as we could possibly be. So you got 40 employees working away. You've got a big warehouse full of stuff. And if that suddenly shifts, and this, you see this in companies all the time, it suddenly shifts where you don't, you have a lot of overhead and suddenly don't have the revenue um, the, the volume that you had before. Um, you have to, what I, you know, what, what we didn't do well was we didn't shift fast, you know, like, like, you know, cause I had never really let anybody off. <laughs> and so the idea of laying people off was not something that, that we, uh, we, we did it through attrition mostly. And we would find work, we would find jobs for people in other companies to slowly go down and up and down, but having to say, I got to lay off, you know, 10%, you know, and, and the, it's really easy for us to get upset about companies that lay people off. But the number one, your number one cost is general. The number one cost that you can, you can change quickly is payroll. You know, like that's the, you know, this is this huge, and and, and again, it's hard for people who, who don't have, uh, who don't own a company to understand that a a huge portion of your, of your attention becomes payroll. (laughs) Like, you know, like that it is, it is this thing you think about all the time. It's in the back of your head all the time. And when you're talking to clients and when you're talking to other people and you just think you're thinking about how you're making payroll, you know, like, you know, and, and the, um, and so the, and so what happens is, is that the only place that you can just on a dime reduce your costs for most companies is payroll. Selling a building or selling stuff is, you know, it's, it's really hard to, you know, generate enough revenue quickly enough to make that actually happen. And so when people see that go up and down and they say, well, these companies are just using up the workers, well, they're just trying to make sure that the workers that remain are still there <laughs> because, you know, because I didn't, because I didn't do that, because I didn't pivot quickly, um, I, uh, you know, had to lay off, you know, about 35 people on one day, which was, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard day. I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> Go ahead, Jesse. Um, all, all great advice. I'm going to speak from a slightly different perspective. I feel like a lot of the, the opinions given so far were larger businesses. And I want to speak as a freelancer who stumbled into small business ownership and kind of speak to the freelancers who might not even realize that they are in the process of stumbling into small business ownership. Um, the, the three the three components that have uh, made it possible, are, it, it was just three simple instructions that I got maybe five, seven years into my career. Um, be on time, 
make sure your gear works and be pleasant to work with. And if you can achieve those three, you'll always have work as a freelancer. And before you know it, you will need to upgrade to a business. I wish that when I had landed in LA, like before I went to the DMV, I registered an LLC. Always be operating under a business, even if you're just one person in your, you know, in your home office or in your at your desk at your bedroom. Um, you should have the protection of an LLC. And long before you need a lawyer, figure out what a lawyer costs. Long before you need an accountant, figure out what an accountant costs, because you will be spending that money before you know it. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I got for y'all. Yeah, it's really important. And and the things that you just said, the, the, the basic, what I would call basic ball handling skills of being easy to work with, being uh, on time and having things work is a big deal. Uh, I showed some stuff when we were talking last week about the fact that we would build everything up uh, in our studio and make sure that it's all working there, make sure that everything was labeled, make sure that everything's all sorted out. The reason that we got the Google work that we got a long time ago was because it was a little $5,000 job. So everyone was just kind of showing up. They had, they had had failure after failure after failure after failure before us. And we spent two weeks working on it, almost full time for a little $5,000 job. Like we, we just knew that this was a big client. This is an opportunity to turn a corner. And we just had three, three people working on it full time for, um, for two weeks. And then in, in talking to them and asking questions and figuring it out, and then we got there and it just worked seamlessly because we had spent all that time going. And then it, the, the switch flipped on, <laughs> like, you know, because, you know, and that's the thing is that, you know, if, you know, being able to see those things and put the effort into them makes a huge difference. Go ahead, Jason. You know, you're taught in business school that the strengths and weaknesses of the individual become the strengths and weaknesses of the organization. And <clears throat> it doesn't really hit home until you realize that the smaller the organization is, the more critical that can be. So, you know, busyness doesn't necessarily mean business. Um, it just means busyness. And uh, to that end, it, a new business tends to run on this um, one-man cult of positivity. And um, that, that will never keep the lights on. It will, it will make you feel good, but it will, it will never keep the lights on. So just if you're going to go about this yourself, which, by the way, I, I mean, I have as, as – pretty much the whole time a one-man organization for the last 14 years and have loved it, um, recognize that how you do anything is how you do everything. And if you don't understand it, figure it out or pay somebody who does. Good, Chris. Um, real quickly, Alex, you were talking about cash flow, and there's a couple, couple little tips that I would mention about cash flow. You know, big businesses are really good at managing their cash flow, and really big businesses are really good at it. And um, there's a couple of things as a small person, a small business that you can do to help. Many companies have um, internal edicts that say if you can save money uh, some way in paying the invoice you, that they have to do it, you can actually give a discount for paying net 30 as opposed to net 60 or net 90. And, they'll, and their accounting people will go, oh, we have to pay this net 30. And so you know, fiddle with your numbers and, and make that such. I actually had a company, uh, a client years ago, um, like 25 years ago, that uh, we knew the guy, because he was the brother of one of my friends, who all the invoices went to. And he gave us two bits of advice. He said, number one, 
don't ever give us an invoice, and this is particular to this company, don't ever give us an invoice that's more than $10,000. He goes, you can send me three invoices for $9,999, but over $10,000, it goes through a different uh, approval cycle and it becomes a nightmare. Also, and this is really insidious, but he told us, one of the things that he was instructed to do was every invoice that came in, he'd take it out of the envelope and he'd put it in a box on the corner of his desk and he would leave it there until he got a phone call about it. He was instructed to ignore it sitting on the corner of his desk and all of a sudden you'd, you'd call and go, hey, you know, that I sent an invoice in about, you know, six, eight weeks ago. Oh, I'm sorry, it's right here. It must have slipped through the cracks. We'll make sure that goes out right now. You may want to call people if you're waiting around for money. Cash flow is nice. a, a, a killer. Just What's be that? nice about it. Just be nice about mm-hmm. it. Like it's just business. Like it's you know like we. I, I what I would say is that that we um, as business we would we would follow up with folks. Um, but you know usually most of our especially with larger clients it does just generally take time for it to work through the system, um, and um, and so we would but we would you know the the. I think that we only, I mean, in hundreds and or maybe thousands of invoices, we only probably got edgy two or three times, you know, where it was, and it was 120 days, you know, that we were out, you know, on, on a relatively significant amount of money. Um, but we, and we always got paid. I've literally never done a job where we didn't get paid. <laughs> you know, so, so the, uh, um, but the, uh, but the amount of roughness that was required to do it was, um, uh, you know, was just different levels. Um, but in general, what we found is that if we came up and, hey, just checking in, and we wouldn't do it the day of it being due, we'd give it about 10 days and we just could go on, hey, just checking in and just seeing if uh, you, you have our invoice and make sure everything's working. It just kind of ticked, you know, just tickled the system like we're paying attention. And that usually was all it took to get it relatively, you know, get it through that system and, and just be able to continue to be, but be nice about it. I know from, as the company owner, when people are prickly, they, you know, they have to be uh, really good at what they do for us to keep working with them. Like, so, and this gets into what was talked about earlier, being nice um, and being on time and having things work. You really have to be on time and have things work if you're not going to be nice. You know, like the, one of those things has to, so if if people would be rough with us on emails or their business partner or their wife or what, husband or whatever it was that was going to call us and, 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 and harangue us one day after it was due, um, usually they went to the bottom of the list really quickly. Now, if they had a really high skill set, they might get back in. But after that, it was like anybody got prickly with us. It was pretty much like, okay, well... <laughs> Let's not do that again. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, another thing is to study the bankruptcy laws because bankruptcy, especially Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States, has been used as a business tool these days <laughs> instead of uh, it's a business practice. There are a lot of uh, shady operators that will set up companies, secure loans, uh, run up lots of bills, pay themselves huge salaries, and then declare bankruptcy and go off and uh, start another company. And that bankruptcy, a chapter, even a Chapter 11 reorganization bankruptcy, puts all lawsuits on hold. And if you sue somebody in a civil court or in state court, uh, they all they have to do is file for bank, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They still control the company. They still hold the company. Uh, but it goes into reorganization, and you know it bring it moves all lawsuits that are involved. If you're suing somebody that declares bankruptcy into federal court, whole different set of lawyers. You got to change over lawyers to federal lawyers. You got to go to federal court. It's a nightmare, and it is used as a tool these days by a lot of uh, unscrupulous business persons. 
Yeah, and and I will say, as a son of a lawyer, this, uh, suing someone is the nuclear option. Like it's you just just know that it is. Uh, you do not know how it will turn out. As soon as you as soon as you flick, it's like it's like opening <laughs> declaring war, and you will not know. You do not know the outcome when you enter a lawsuit, and and it is. Uh, it I will avoid it at almost all costs um, to to try to take someone to court. It is it is a you know some people you don't even want to threaten it, like. I got to tell you, you know, you threaten somebody with, if you're going to actually sue someone, then sue them. But if you threaten to, like, I'm going to sue you if you don't do this, just so you know, there's a whole, on a comp, on a big company and even a small company, there's a whole bunch of shields that go up. And you, as soon as you say, I'm going to sue somebody, it's, even if you tell them you're going to sue somebody else, they're going to go litigious and it you, you become kind of like nobody wants to touch you after that <laughs> because, because that the amount of expense and everything else that's required to do that um, is, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, go ahead, CJ. Just another variation on the managing high side credit risk question or topic. You've got to, especially when you're very small, if you get an opportunity that seems like it's maybe too good to be true or there's a there's a really big paycheck waiting at the end of the other side of the uh, relationship, you got to know who you're doing business with. You've got to know, do these people have the ability, do they seem like they have the ability to pay the sum that this is going to cost? Because that can be devastating. If one invoice is going to be the difference of whether or not you're solvent, that's a, that's a huge deal when you're really, really small, but also when you're bringing on new clients, uh, you know, it's, it's worth the time to have a coffee, have a meal, uh, get to know their story, get to know them on some kind of personal level so that you can somewhat trust your intuition to, you know, are these people for real? Absolutely. And we try to, in the past with, with my company, we would try to do small jobs with people before we did big ones. I mean, as best we could, you know, like we didn't, we wanted to do a $25,000 job or a $20,000 job. We didn't want to take the first job be a $200,000 job with them. Um, mostly because we wanted to see what their, what their billing structure was like, you know, in that company, even if it's a big company, you just didn't know how, what it was going to take and how long it was going to take to, to move through and how many hoops that you had to go through. Oftentimes with a very large company, with those little jobs, there's an enormous amount of paperwork to get started. You know, there's the master service agreement, there's the um, proof of insurance, there's the there are a whole bunch of other like non non disclosure agreements and all kinds of other stuff that gets kind of worked out there. And um, those are all things that we had to kind of sort out. But it's worth it to go through it for a small job, see if it works, and then uh, and then you're in. The, the other thing is is that those are the opportunities to get into the system because once you're in the system with a large company, the other thing to know is that you're the easiest one to hire <laughs> because it took them a lot of work too to do that process. Uh, let's go to the first question. First one comes to us from Craig McFarland in Boston, Massachusetts. Startups are cash starved, typically. How do you work around that limitation? Good, Nigel. There's an old phrase that says, never a lender or a borrower be. Now, you can't always get out of the, uh, you know, bank will lend you money, you need cash flow and stuff. But be very careful who you lend money to. And I don't mean write checks to, I mean how much inventory you have that you're not using. Whether you start a job without being paid on the deposit, uh, whether you have to buy any assets before you get the cash, all of those are places 
where in a small business, you are lending somebody else money, you are lending somebody else your money and your cash. So it's okay to borrow sometimes because you're going to have to for cash flow purposes, for having a, a draft or, or different ways of doing it. But be really careful about where you're lending money. You may not think of it that way, but that's what you're doing. Good, Courtney. Yeah, you learn how to do cash flow, especially if you've got employees where you have to meet payroll. There are a lot of state laws that you have to comply with on paying within a certain period of time to your employees. Uh, but you may be invoicing your clients, and they have different uh, rates of payment. So some of them are 30 days, some of them are 60 days, some of them are 90 days. So I always uh, maintain a uh, pad or a buffer of at least six months worth of payroll in the bank all at all times so that uh, in case I get behind, I don't have to do what uh, what Alex mentioned and factor any of the invoices and I can get full. Now, I eventually will collect on those invoices that go 90 days out and those are the ones, usually the people that do that are the super big corporations like Disney or Sony or those corporations because, you know, it's hard to get them to pay within 60 days because of all the bureaucracy. But always have a buffer of cash in the bank that can let you cover payroll for at least three to four months uh, without having to deal with borrowing money to cover payroll. And to be clear, when we were factoring, we went from 50000 a month to 300000 a month and then to 400000 and then 800000 like it was, it was like It was like this. It was a, it was a, there was no amount of savings that was going to protect us from, from that process. Go ahead, Bill. And also, don't forget, you're not dealing with companies. You're dealing with people at the bottom line. I had a circumstance very early in my career. We were moving from camcorder shot videos, and I wanted a bigger camera with XLR audio on this. And so I was just sitting with my primary client at the time talking about that and saying, yeah, we're probably another two months, three months away from having the funds to buy a bigger camera. But let's get going on this one. And he looked at me and he said, hmm. Would it help if you invoice me for ten grand, and I'll pay it real quick? And will that help you get the camera? And I went, you bet. And so I would never have gone to him for financing. That wasn't his job. That wasn't the piece. But I had successfully done five or six projects. He trusted me. I trusted him. And so he said, well, go ahead and pre-bill for this. That way you can get the camera and use it on my thing. That'll be a benefit to me and a benefit to you. And so relationships, relationships, relationships. Go, Jason. Mm. Wow. Yeah. What Bill's saying is worth thinking about more more than what I was about to say. So I'll skip. Go, CJ. Uh, besides uh, echoing Nigel's point about, you know, unless you're Wells Fargo or Chase, you're not in the banking business, so don't be a bank. Um, I think the other thing is no, or ha- have a good plan about, especially if you're if you're a one or a two person shop, a very small business. Understand what your invoicing structure is going to be. Are you going to, depending on what vertical you're in, are, is there a certain percentage down deposit that people can expect to get you to start the work? Like you can't go and build a house unless you put some money down to let them know that you're serious. Uh, so understanding how, how you're going to get paid so that you're not uh, caught in a situation where you run dry. And and there's a, there's a balance there, you know? So for instance, as a, when I was a small company, being able to tell the client, um, yeah, we can't, you know, we need this money up front to get your project off the ground because we just don't have the resources to do it. Um, you know, we don't have those things in house. We're going to have to bring this stuff in and we need money up front. And that's a totally reasonable thing to do. As you get bigger, one of the big advantages, if you have enough cash flow going on, is when you don't have to do that, 
it opens you up to a whole bunch of other companies that and a whole bunch of other processes. So a company that knows that they can just go to you and there isn't because some companies, some large corporations, they really don't have a mechanism to pay you up front. Like they're, they don't have a mechanism to do that easily and they can do it, but it's really painful. It's a lot of extra people uh, and extra time and effort on their end to do that. It doesn't mean you never ask for it if they ask for a half a million dollar job or something. <laughs> we had a job that came in, it was a half million dollar job and I was like, I need half up front, <laughs> you know, like, and, and they, you know, because I just, there's no way for us to get that done. But at the same time, because we had all of that, there's a couple of things that we found that got us into a place that allowed us to do a lot more work. Number one is that we would never, almost never ask our large corporate clients that were, that we had an MSA and a track record with, we never asked for anything up front. Like they just came to us and we would do it. In fact, we would usually be on the road to doing it before we had any paperwork working, we were just going because that was that they, they were moving at that speed. The second thing was, is that we had all the insurance that was all set up that you needed. So these are $7 million of liability, $2 million of loss, you know, whatever these numbers are, they're really big. And they cost, you know, they cost us probably $50,000 a, a year <laughs> to maintain those insurance. But knowing that we could just do that, um, and no, it gave, it put you in a different status, you know? And so these are the things to know is that as you grow, you get into a status, a status point where you, you can do those things that, that a lot of other smaller companies can't do. And it, it allows you to take in a lot of work that they can't, they can't represent. Now, the other side of that is also know that as a small business, you are an advantage to a large business. If you're, if they're doing a large government contract, as an example, they need to bring in small businesses as part of the package. And so looking for those programs is really important because if you're a small business and especially if you're a small business and minority business and other things like that, those are those are interesting to government contractors. And you should know that those are there's a work available for you that is and it's on purpose so that you get a chance to work on larger projects so that you can build up your company. So, um, and we didn't take advantage of any of those because we grew too fast, but, but we, but I know that they're out there and we were relatively small compared to the, the billion dollar companies we were getting, we were talking to right at the very end. Next question. CJ Covell in uh, Central PA here on the panel. When startups grow, what strategies do you use to maintain a small company culture? For many, growth of the business comes with increased formality and all-around stuffiness. It's hard. I mean, it's really hard to get, you know, because the, you have, you know, with more people, you have more problems as well as more productivity. So you you have to, you know, you have to be as, an, as, a, as, as you grow as a company, I will say the natural thing for most company owners is to become more defensive. Like you just, you just, it, what was very natural and, you know, it doesn't, it, it only takes a couple rough interactions with employees, you know, you'll have some problem employee or someone who did, did something crazy or, or someone who, you know, threatens all kinds of things before you start to pull back and go, well, I, you know, I, you know, and, and, and so that it's a really hard thing to maintain um, that fluidness that you had when you were small um, and informalness that that you had because it's just legally difficult. Go to Courtney. And if you're a, a majority holder in a company, uh, either a, a proprietorship or a corporation where you're a majority holder, is offer uh, profit sharing to the key people 
because it'll keep them interesting, it'll keep them on your side and working to keep the company solvent. Uh, if they're sharing in some way, either in stock, you know, stock profit sharing with uh, stock options for them, or or just uh, offer them the uh, bonus percentages based on growth or income, net income, because uh, it will keep your employees interested and keep them from uh, going to another company and competing with you if they know that they have a share of what your company is going to be making. Go, ahead, Nigel. I think you have to accept at some point uh, you are not their friend, you are their employer. And and while that might seem uh, tough or mean to some people, at the end of the day, if they are reliant on you for their salary, for putting food on their table, for taking their kids through college, you are never going to maintain the thing that you had when the three of your best friends went out and decided to start a lemonade stand or whatever the first business thing is. This is real, my friends. And you've got to decide how your business is going to run, how you're going to do it, and then be consistent with it. Uh, It doesn't mean you have to be mean. It doesn't mean you have to be unfriendly. But you do have to be consistent and you have to be businesslike because people are now relying on you for their families. And so I think getting your brain around that is a really important thing. You, the, Again, the three of you, when you had fun, when you're 15, 20, 30 people, these things don't exist anymore because people are reliant. Yeah, and, and one of the things that Nigel said that I'm always surprised that startups don't, don't get is being businesslike in the sense of being appropriate and not as a, once you own a company and you start to build it up, be appropriate with your employees. You know, like like there's a lot of things that people can do that, that they, they they can, you know, especially because a lot of entrepreneurs can be very, you know, fly by the seat of their pants. And, you know, part of what makes it work is that they're on the edge. And the kind of things that happen with their employees, it's you're always kind of like, well, it seems like an unforced error to, to do that. And so you just really want to be careful of how, and I think that's also why employees become a little bit more, I mean, companies become a little more stuffy is because they they start, you know, worrying a little bit about about that process. Go ahead, Bill. So sometimes you just can't keep some of the small company stuff. It will, as the company that you're working for grows, things will fall by the wayside. I, one of my favorite little stories, and I'll tell this really quickly. We had a, the initiative was corporate brands. The company I was working for had a series of corporate brands. We wanted to promote them out and the whole thing. So we did a video. And part of the video was going around through the corporate office and saying, listen, name the corporate brands for everyone. I'm going to give you a $20 bill. And somebody would get three of them and somebody would get nine of them. And we we sent this out in a video. It was hugely successful. And then I got the call. What the heck are you guys doing? You're paying people in the stores money that's not going through payroll. There's no taxes taken out of it. Blah, 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 blah. Turned into a big kerfluffle. And so what worked in the small mindset of be effective and get this message out to the troops ran headlong into we are a big company now and we cannot do stuff like handing people money in the stores. It's just not right. Stop it. We have to now do all this work to go back and take out matching FICA and the rest of this stuff because you paid an employee. We didn't understand that. They didn't understand that. And it was a sobering moment to say, sometimes you just can't have that small company culture anymore when you're working with a big company. It just doesn't work. So you have to pick your battles and know that there are great benefits. I'll never forget the day we got ACH uh, direct deposit of our larger and larger invoices that just showed up in the bank and I didn't have to get checks in the mail anymore. Great day in my history of business. But on the other side of it, you had days like the one I just described where you go, huh, gosh, I got to play differently now. 
I know I know someone who has left a large company, built a startup, and sold it back to the large company three times, three times. And I was like, "How how do you pull that off? Why don't why don't you just do it in house?" And you said, "You can't do it now. <laughs> you can't you can't have you know five people sitting around trying to figure something out. It just it just it just it's it's actually good for the company for us to go out and do our own thing and sell it back to them if they want it. You know, they um, rather than dealing with all the infrastructure that's required. Go ahead, CJ. The uh, the axiom of incentive drives behavior. I think for me has been usurped by. Uh, something that I gleefully steal from this show, which would be uh, carrots are greater than sticks. It's it's really the thing for me is I'm always trying to figure out how do I get people to want to do what I want them to do. And that involves every individual having different motivations. Some people are in it for the money. Some people are in it for the fulfillment. Everyone has a different want and a different need. So understanding what makes them tick and then getting someone to to do what you want them to do, not because it's a policy, but because it's the right thing to do, uh, is is just paramount for me. Yeah, one of the things that I that we worked on that we were pretty successful at is matching up, getting the right ratio of people who really knew what they were doing and new people who were learning and and oftentimes not as expensive. <laughs> so you pay people well that are that are the people who know how to do something, but you can't fill your whole company with those people because a they they will have their own opinions about how to do all these things. You need you can't have like, you know, three people who really know a lot about video and audio in, in one little division because they'll sit there and argue with each other about it. Um, whereas you have one person that, that that you're paying a lot of money and they know that thing. And you might have a couple of them. But the point is is that that gel was really important. And we found that for us it was usually people coming up where that, that ratio is three or four to every person that really was a someone who really understood that that process and allowed those other ones coming up to learn a lot. You know, because they, you, what you don't want, this is the mistake I made at the beginning, is I was like, I can tell everyone what to do or figure it all out or whatever. And that meant that I couldn't, I couldn't um, do anything other than pay attention to those things. And people are making mistakes all the time. By having people that are there that can correct you and give you guidance, those the new folks that came in were super successful you know and we picked them very carefully as well so picking them very very slowly and very carefully and then and then and then really nurturing them and training them and and spending time on that there's a saying that a cfo goes to a ceo says what if we train everybody and they leave and the ceo goes what if we don't and they stay (laughs) so we we spent a lot of time training people and bringing them up and knowing that we can't afford to keep them all. And so we would be constantly offloading people to some of the companies that we worked with. Um, and if we could do it in a structured way that didn't get us in trouble, um, then, um, then you know, it was just constantly people were getting hired by our clients. And what that meant was I have all these people in those companies that I know, you know, and, and that, that we succeeded. We never tried to, you know, hang on to them, you know, as much as we just, you know, just knew that them moving to the next big thing for them was good for us. Go ahead, Jason. CJ reminded me of something I learned early on, which is that your money is the only thing in this whole world of business that does precisely what you tell it to, because nothing else will. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just how it is. Next question. Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York in the U.S. says, what non-production skills do you consider must-haves, accounting basis, legal insurance, marketing, and so forth? Nigel. So I'll give you a concept that I like, which is called core versus context. There are some things you do that are core to you being a successful business, and there are some things that you do that are the context. So core is, particularly as the sole proprietor, as the leader of the business, is the thing that generates future business and future profit and future cash. 
so you should spend as much of your time on those as you can. The context to some of those things, by the way, marketing is not context, it's a core thing. Um, the, the, uh, the rest of those are context. If you are spending time on context, you are costing yourself opportunity to do the things that are core. Now, obviously, there are some things as a very small business you can't get around having to do that are context. But invariably, find somebody else to do the context stuff for you. Outsource it, hire the person, have your spouse, your brother, your cat, or somebody do that. Because every moment you spend on context, you are not spending on core, which is the thing that will drive your business. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, um, a lot of what you learn in business school, people have ideas about this, but it doesn't teach you how to succeed. Um, it teaches you how other people historically have failed, which is a very, very, very different thing. It's kind of like in you know, a law school teaches you the law. It doesn't teach you, you know, like my cousin Vinny, right? It doesn't teach you courtroom procedure. Um, th- th- there's there's a whole bunch that that, you know, that you need to understand or you need to, as Nigel said, very quickly um, figure out what to do with. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Number one for me would be an instinct for reading people. 90% of everything I've messed up, it was because I read somebody wrong. And it happened very few times. But, you know, that person who you just get a feeling for, you know, they're being serious. I'll never forget sitting across the desk and, and somebody just flat out lied about an encounter we'd had. Just flat out completely lied. And I went, why didn't I see that they were capable of that? I should have. And I doubled down and I paid attention to those signals for me. I don't like dealing with liars. I just, it, it, they're toxic and horrible people. And I, if I can find them, I want them out of my life. CJ? If you're trying to surround yourself with individuals to help you grow your vision or help you grow your idea, you need to be as equally conscious of what they're good at and maybe even more so be conscious of what you are not good at. Uh, and always try to, I always try to hire people who are strong where I am not strong. So that way together we've got a whole package. I know that there are some things I'm really good at and I know that there's some things that I'm not. So when somebody comes into me and they have that intangible that fills the gap uh, that I have personally, I'm immediately attracted to that's the kind of person, that's the kind of skill I want to hire. And you can't put that down on paper. I, I call it an intangible. Yeah, I, I am very clear that I, I build everything with teams because I, I need to diversify quickly because I, I'm good at this various little thing to figure things out. And then I need other people to help me with all the other bits and pieces to figure those out. And um, otherwise, you just can't get a lot done. Um, next question. Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts says, how far from your original vision did the business end up? What did you take away from that process? Nigel. Almost every small business I've been involved in ends up in a different place than what I started. And here's why. Uh, when you start your small business, you, you have a set of assumptions. If you're smart, you'll write those assumptions down. But you have a set of assumptions about yourself, about the market, about the product, about the business environment. Think, you know, typical social, political, economic and technical things that affect your, your business. You have a set of assumptions. Some of those assumptions are wrong. Some of them change because the world changes around you. And you've got to go back at some point and recheck your assumptions and then decide whether the business you're in is actually makes sense anymore. But almost every small business I've done, every startup I've done, 
when we've re-looked at the assumptions year one in or year two in, some of them were wrong. And therefore, you have to do this this hideous phrase, which is pivot, which uh, is a really dangerous thing to do uh, because it, it can be uh, catching the flying knife or even just following the shiny object. But almost every business finds its assumptions are wrong. Go, Jason. When I wrote the business plan uh, for Nerds Limited, I... I would have spent less time worrying about um, how and whether or not I would have been paid. Um, other than that, it's actually surprisingly close on my end. Next question. Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota is up next. Is there a good way to put gear I've personally acquired into a business? And if so, what are some practices to avoid and watch out for? Courtney? Uh, look at renting the equipment back to the business, and but make sure you do it at a uh, competitive rate. In other words, get some comps from that type of equipment at uh, at another equipment rental house and rent it to the company. You get income from the company, from your own company, and the company gets to write uh, that uh, rental off as a, a 100% expense uh, to production so they can take a tax uh, you know, tax expense off. So that's the best way to do it. Probably the one of the, it's not necessarily the cleanest way to do it, but probably one of the best. That or sell the equipment to the business. Next question. Next question comes from Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. Are there ever circumstances that would, in which it makes sense to do what you can do what you can to remain small? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of things that you that there are ways to to be a small shop and and do a and or a relatively small shop. The big thing you have to weigh is can you make money when you're sleeping? <laughs> like this. so, being a small shop, especially if you're selling a product or software, that can often make sense because uh, you are um, still generating revenue. The hard part is really if you remain small or don't have very many people, and then you fill them all up, and you have to start turning work away every time you turn a job away. We had a, I had a client that we were doing probably a million and a half a year with, and we turned them down for one job, and um, you know they never came back. <laughs> you know, so, so they, you know, they, they decided to do something different. It wasn't as good as what we were doing, but it was good enough for what they, what they wanted to do. Um, and so, and you know, that's the thing that you always have to be careful of is turning, turning work down, um, put you in a position. And I hap- it happened to be when they were changing all the people that we knew had changed. And so we were like in an- another relationship with them. Um, anyway, so the point is, is that you have to be, the, the being small makes it hard for you to maintain some as your clients needs grow is hard to continue to absorb those needs. Um, the But there is a huge advantage to staying small in the sense that when things slow down, you have a lot less overhead and you have a lot, you can last a lot longer uh, without having to bring other things in. I've known people that have one or two people and they can go for four or five months uh, without any income <laughs> and, and they're fine. I had to generate, you know, when I had my last company, I had to generate a half million dollars a month or I'd, you know, hit the wall, you know, and so that was a different, you know, two different, uh, you know, worlds. Yeah. So there, I think there's a lot of advantages to it. You just have to figure out what happens if you get sick or what happens if there's a small, you know, if you get a big job in, you know, how are you going to manage that? Next question. Craig McFarlane again, Boston, Massachusetts. How do you balance keeping focus on the plan versus seeing an opportunity or need to pivot toward? Nigel? Yeah, if you're thinking of starting a business or if you want to set your business, I'd really encourage you to look at something called the Lean Canvas. The Lean Canvas is a really good way that a small business, a startup business, can assess uh, what is uh going to do. And right at the center of the link canvas is something called your unique value proposition. Spend the time on your value proposition. That is your bullseye 
That is the place that when you hit that and the client and the customer, you will make money. Uh, everything else is in the boundary. And if you aim at the boundary, you often miss the bullseye. And so there's nothing worse for a business that gets lost in the boundary of its opportunity, that strays away from its value proposition, strays away from its bullseye, because you can't make as much money unless you're very lucky in the boundary as you can make in the bullseye because it's not what you're there to do. When you start hiring salespeople uh, to do some of this work for you, one of the things you'll spot very quickly is they, they feel their job is to find something on the boundary and connect it to the bullseye because that way they can earn money. However, for you and your business, it's outside your value proposition and can lead you astray. CJ? We always try to not be all things to all people and understand, uh, like Nigel said, what is your value proposition? And one of the guiding principles that we use to decide what things do we say yes to versus what we say no to, uh, something I've talked about before from, uh, I think I stole it from Jim Collins, good to great, it was the hedgehog concept. And the hedgehog concept is a triple Venn diagram of what are you deeply, deeply passionate about? What can you make money doing? What drives your economic engine? And then what are you the best in the world at? When the thing that you're saying yes to, the thing that you're focusing on is at the intersection of all three of those, you've got a home run. Next question. Next one from uh, Craig McFarland again, Boston. How did you overcome a business not working out so you can actually learn from it? Nigel? I didn't. I quitted it. Uh, I worked for a startup. Um, I, I didn't own the startup. I worked for them. It was a fabulous idea. Its assumptions were wrong. The owners weren't willing to accept it, so I walked away. A great book on the subject, Annie Duke's book, uh, Quit. Uh, learning to quit is a really important skill in any market, in any business, with any client. We, we sort of live in a culture where we have to endure and we have to keep going till the bitter end. No, learn to quit. The, uh, what's interesting is that the, um, uh, it's not just about quitting a company or quitting a job. It's also just quitting an assumption. You know, like I've had, I think in my world, I've had these things like I thought I just had to have to make this actually work. And I think that I've had to give up every single one of them to keep moving forward. <laughs> like, like every, everything that I thought was important, I had to give up, you know, to, to move to the next step, you know. Um, and so you just have to learn that you, you, I think that from business, from a business perspective, you have to kind of go, okay, I'm going to have to let that go. You know, like, like this isn't, this thing I thought was important, I'm going to have to find another way to do that, not the way that I thought I was going to. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think failure is more quickly evolutionary for most of us than is success. I mean, if you if you go out to put up the lemonade stand and the next thing you know, everybody in town is showing up and you're just making money hand over fist, you're going to expect the next time you go out and set up something to sell it to be like that. And it's probably not going to be. So you have to figure out why did the first one succeed, but just as important Look at all the things that I paid no attention to in the first go-round that I really should have in order to get to the point where the second one had a better chance. I, I, failure is a an extraordinary teacher. You just can't do it forever because nobody likes that. Well, and, and you know, you want to – you actually want to – fail small, fail often as much as you can in a lot of different places. I mean, when we, when we work out, we, you know, like if, if, you know, if you work out, you're working out generally to failure, you know, it's like you're telling your body, you can't do this. And so then you respond to that. And so I think that you want to have failures. You want to try to keep them as, as small as possible, um, as often and, but do them often, um, because it's really, really important. Um, but I think that, 
you learn the most by having companies not or or ideas or processes not work. It's just that you want to learn them at a, at a rate that you can survive. <laughs> Next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. Some have said that in-office work is best for startups and small companies as it fosters greater cohesion and communication versus remote work. Thoughts? Uh, not always. I mean, I know a lot of a lot of small companies that have done really well without have ever having seen each other. Um, I know we, there was a company that built itself inside of Pixelcore. Uh, I don't know if they had ever been in the same room with each other for the first couple years that they were in business, um, and so they they were constantly passing. They still they still exist. They, I still hired them to do things for me, and I, I think they eventually met each other in person. But I don't think they did when they started the company, and they were in three different continents, all working working together. Go ahead, Bill. I think office hours kind of pushes me away from that thought. I mean, this has been very, very, very satisfying meeting the people that I've met through office hours, showing up with them every morning. We have a little bit of basic water cooler time. And so it has been a joy. So I can't imagine that going forward through my life, I won't have other circumstances like this where I bring a group of people together and get to know them and we all get to try to get something accomplished and succeed at it based on those that that remote connection. And I, you know, we, I, I have some friends that work at a company that has never been, you know, and they started off as a startup remote and then just kept building. And now they have, I don't know, it's like 80 or hundred employees and they've never, they never thought about putting everybody in one place. They have regional and, you know, you know, regional and, and, uh, you know, national and international get togethers that they have there, but they don't, um, so that they actually do meet each other, but they've never thought of actually having an office building, you know, like, and that's, and they've been around for a, a long time. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Nigel, how would you evaluate a potential production studio and showroom in Austin's museum district? It's mixed commercial residential, five parking spaces, and he's got a link to it there. It looks very like. specific. This is a very specific yeah. question for you. Good, Nigel. Yeah. Uh, I would read the value proposition, I would read the business plan, and then I would uh, make some decisions from there. I won't do it with either. If you don't know how to write a business plan, Paul, or you don't know how to write a value proposition, I do offer a service. It's $10,000 a day. Happy to help. <laughs> well, and, and the, the thing the thing that I'm always, I have to admit that I'm always very careful of, and because of what I do, I, I think part of it is, is I'm always reticent to spend money on spackling. You know, like, so, like, if I see a shiny space... I really have to know why that space has to be shiny. Like, what is it that it brings me that I'm going to, am I going to bring clients here? Am I going to do this thing? It's not, you know, like it, it really, uh, it's, I'm always careful of that. Next question. And uh, the final one, at least in this grouping, D uh, Douglas Carmichael, how do you manage equipment purchases to meet current and future needs of your clients while not getting suckered into marketing hype? Um, and we're going to go just a little over because we had a couple questions come in that I didn't put into the, that I didn't move forward. And I want to make sure we address them. Um, Jason, real quick. You make enough money to um, afford the occasional mistake. And the way that we did it um, in Pixelcore for a very long time is that one third of my, so we rented all of our gear. Like we calculated that rental um, to, um, uh, you know, in our bids, we did single bids. We didn't actually itemize it, but we calculated, hey, I'm going to give you, you know, the, this rental at market rate is going to be $25,000 or $12,000 or $320,000, whatever that was. Our budget was one third of that. Our budget to buy new equipment was one third of the rental rate for every show. 
So one third of the rental rate of every show, we could buy new equipment and we did. <laughs> like we, just, we just constantly spent one third of that uh, in there. Next question. We're going to kind of move quickly because we're at the end here. Next question. George Ha, Talent, Oregon, Oregon. We strived for early job confirmation from the client. We think delay due to our 15-day cancellation policy or maybe they are still shopping around. We need more lead time than the 14-day window they prefer. Any recommendations from the panel? Uh, Jason, real quick. If a client does, um, you know, does a, a last minute drop more than once, then require deposit, period. Yeah, we we uh, did stuff all the time when it wasn't even confirmed and we were already on the, on site. <laughs> so so it, it depends on your relationship with the client as well. Um, it's 14 days is can be very hard for clients. Um, obviously, it depends on the logistics that are required to make that actually work as well. So sometimes you need a lot of, you need, because of logistics, you know, we can tell people oftentimes it's going to get a lot more expensive. Like this quote lasts until this day. And then after that, it's going to get more expensive because my flights go up and everything else. We explain to them that these are all the things that we have to now start to push. And that might be 30 days out, 40 a lot of times we had scales of like it's cost this much right now this is 45 days out at 15 days out it might be 30 or 40 percent more because of the, the additional resources that are required to achieve that next question justin hansen hansen glendale arizona second hour are we at the point in the industry where we're oversaturated with workers go ahead, bill i don't think so unemployment is way down i think we're we're i think there's churn. There's a lot of people who were trained for one thing and they need to change to something else because everything out there is changing in the production industry. I mean, when you're going from 70, 80, 90, $100,000 beta cams to iPhones being usable for certain classes of projects, that's a lot of disruption. And the person who was great at operating the first one may not be great at doing the second one. So if I got to find not just people, but the right people, and that I think is what's difficult now. Yeah, the hard the hard thing for most people is is that the most companies are painfully under resourced. They are desperate for new people. Um, this is what's happening right now in our industry, and they're trying to find them. Um, if you're not in that in that area, then you want to think about who are you networking with, what are you doing to get out there, how are you meeting other people, how are you operating when you're in that in that environment. Um, if you're not if you're not really busy right now, you know, think about you know like as an employee. Um, you know, and, and even as a company, there's stuff of it out there all the time. If you're not really busy, think about what is causing that to happen. And it may not be a market force. Um, next question. Next one, last one. Chris Clark Tempe, is there a small business analogy to the Steve Jobs was fired from Apple event and how to prepare, prepare or prevent? Courtney? Courtney. Oh. Oh, maintain, maintain controlling interest. Uh, maintain more than 51% of the stock so that you can't be voted out by the, uh, you know, we learned this in succession. You can't be voted out by the board if you maintain controlling interest in the, in the business. Thanks so much. It was a good conversation. It was, it was good, good, good for us to kind of talk through. Again, these are the kind of things that a lot of folks don't talk about. <laughs> so, or, or, you know, and I think that there's always this how to get more followers on Twitter and how to do this and how to do that. But there's often not like what to learn from all these other things. So hopefully we'll have these every once in a while, maybe once a quarter. Some, we all talked about it here. But it might be good to bring other people in to talk about it too. So stay tuned for more of those. Uh, thank you so much to the um, to the panelists. We can't do this without you. So it's really really good conversation. It was really great to have all of you here today to have this conversation. I think it's an important one for folks to to really think through. Uh, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that makes this happen every single day, seven days a week. That manages what what are we going to talk about? How are we going to talk about it? And making sure that it's programmed so that we can make it actually happen, and um, and then actually executing, pushing the buttons to make this actually. 
work. We really appreciate all the work that you do there. And thanks to the producers for all the great questions. We This is a really short show without your questions. And so we really appreciate it, whether you're putting them in through the QR code or whether you put them in Makana. The more questions, the better. And we really appreciate your your contribution to the show. We traveled 59,000 miles. So that's 95,000 kilometers. And that is 471 million bananas for scale. All right, I got to get this. Make sure you see, see the sign there. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. <laughs> 